Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. In this session, we're going to be looking at another rhetorical question out of Romans chapter 6. The question is found in verse 15. Paul asks this, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. You see, when we realize that we're no longer under the law, under a set of rules and regulations, under stringent demands on our behavior and on our conduct, on how we ought to act and relate to each other. When we realize we're out from under that burden of the law, it sometimes immediately pops in our minds that we can just go do anything we want to do. Because after all, we're not under the law anymore, but under grace. Paul anticipates this question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, and he asks it actually for us, because the question is natural. You see, we've all been conditioned to live under the law. From the time we're little bitty folks when we're just first born and we're under our parental guidance, the parents that we raised us, our guardians and so on, give us the law. They actually tell us what to do, when to do it, where not to do it, and so on. And we learn as we grow up to live our life based on the law. So when we get to Romans chapter 6 and he tells us that we are no longer under the law but under grace as a lifestyle, that we get naturally get the idea that that means that we can just go out and do whatever we want to do. And that thought creeps in to us, and so Paul brings it out front in a question here in verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Shall we continue on in a pattern of unbelief, working itself out in the lust of the flesh, and ultimately in the works of the flesh, or sin, because we're not under law, but under grace. His immediate answer, of course, is God forbid. May it never be, literally in the Greek. But I want us to take a little closer, in-depth look at this answer as we go on in these verses, because he asks us another question, another don't you know in verse 16. And this question is very, very important. Read it with me, if you will. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being made free then from sin, you became the servants of righteousness." Now this is somewhat of a strange answer. It's a, a longer answer than what we might anticipate, but it's somewhat of a strange answer to this simple question, shall we go on sinning because we're not under law but under grace? Normally, the way we would answer such a question as this betrays our legal kind of mentality. Normally I would answer a question like this naturally. I would say, no, we shouldn't go on sinning. Because if we do, God will get us. God will in some way squash us like a bug and fry us in hell if we keep on sinning. Normally we would use some type of scare tactic on ourselves or on others to keep them from sinning. We would say, no, of course you can't go on sinning because if you go on sinning, God will get you. But you see, what we've been studying about the grace of God is that's not how he motivates us. God never mot motivates us with a sense of fear. He never motivates us by scaring us into obedience. Satan motivates us by fear, but God motivates us by love. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, a change in our thinking. It's not the threat of God that changes our thinking. 
And so Paul doesn't answer this question in the normal way. Shall we go on sinning because we're not under grace but under law? He says, certainly God forbid, may it never be. But his answer is in terms again of our identity as people. He wants us to remember again who God has made us to be. And for this to be the reason why we don't go on sinning. And let's read it again carefully. First of all, he says another don't you know. We're going to encounter several don't you knows through our study in Romans 6, 7, and 8. These are things that we ought to know. These are things that he's going to reveal to us so that we can. But unfortunately today, there's not many Christians that do know these things. So let's make sure that we ourselves understand what he's saying when he says, don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now immediately he starts talking about us being servants and us yielding ourselves. This reminds us of what he said previously in this chapter about calling us to yield ourselves as those that are alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It further goes back in the chapter to identify ourselves as servants of God rather than servants of sin. But in verse 17, he gets to the critical part of this explanation of what we're to know. In verse 17, he tells us that we are to thank God for something. Note again with me when I read it. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed. Now let me give you a literal translation. The King James doesn't do it justice here. A literal translation is, you have been caused to obey from the heart. That form of doctrine or that teaching which was delivered you. In other words, God the Holy Spirit brought the teaching of the gospel into your experience. God the Holy Spirit opened your heart that you might receive that gospel. God the Holy Spirit actually clicked the light bulb on in your mind that you might understand that good news. God the Holy Spirit actually caused you to obey through faith, to believe in and trust that gospel. God be thanked that you were, were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now let's use our diagram again so we understand what it is we're talking about. In terms that we've already discussed in a previous lesson, we've noted that when we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we become a brand new person in Christ, represented by this small triangle. We call this the inward man because it's the new creature that God has created us to be. It's the new person. And this inward man, although it still remains in the same body that we had before, is at war with another part of us called the flesh, which is that natural disposition toward evil, or sinful disposition, you could say. But when we come to who we really are, when we come to our identity, according to what he's already revealed to us in Romans 6, we need to remember that we are a brand new person created in Christ Jesus, holy and without blame before God and love. A brand new person that is no longer a slave to sin. If you recall back in our study in Romans 6, in verse 7, he said, whoever is dead is freed from sin. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the Holy Spirit crucifies the old person we were that was dead in sins and trespasses, that sinful person, buried him, we become dead to sin. We are therefore free from sin. Whoever is crucified with Christ and buried with him is dead indeed unto sin, but is raised up in Christ to be alive unto God. This is the same concept that he's talking about in verse 17 when he says, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. There was in your, a point in time in your life when there was no new person there, when there was actually no one there but that sinful person. But God be thanked that he caused you to obey 
in the heart that form of doctrine, that teaching of the gospel that caused you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and create a brand new person inside of you that is now identified here as the servants of righteousness. Now, when we talk about servants, we Americans have a little trouble understanding this because even though in our history as a nation we entertained the concept of slavery and fought a great civil war over that concept, none of us today really knows what it means to be a slave in the sense that he's talking about here. The primary thing that he's trying to get across to us by using this term servant or slave, if you will, is that we have no choice. This is hard for us to accept because, you see, we're used to having a freedom of choice. We're used to being the masters of our own destiny. We're used to being in charge of our own life, to being in control. A slave, you see, was not the master of his own destiny. He was not in charge of anything. He was not in control, per se, but was without choice at all. He had no choice as to what he would do, when he would do it, where he would do it, and so on. And so when he uses this term slave, he means for us to understand that there was a time in our life when we had no choice whatsoever but to sin. No choice whatsoever but to be dysfunctional. No choice whatsoever but to be incompetent in every aspect of our life. He describes it elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, as being dead in sins and trespasses. We had no choice but to sin. Now, you might think back over your life before you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You might even think that, well, you know, I wasn't so bad. I did things that were right. But you see, if you measure the things that you did that were good according to God's standard, you'll find very quickly that you couldn't possibly have done anything that would meet up to God's standard. No matter how good it may have looked to other people, God doesn't just look on the external behavior as man does. God looks on the heart. He looks inside, not just to see what's done, but to see why it's done. Without receiving the gospel that you are worthy in Christ, you cannot possibly do anything or say anything out of a true heart of love for other people. You can only be a slave to the selfishness and the self-centeredness of doing and saying things to make yourself look good and feel good. There is no possible way for you to do anything other than sin as a slave to righteousness. There is no possible way for you to do anything other than rebel, in essence, against God as a slave to sin. Now, when you become a slave to righteousness, likewise, your freedom of choice is removed. I'm going to have to request, once again, that you put on your spiritual seatbelts at this point. Because now I'm about to talk to you about the sovereignty of God. The term sovereignty just simply means God does whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to do it, and wherever he wants to do it, with whomever he wants to do. Because he's in charge. By definition, God is sovereign. If God is not in charge, whoever is in charge is God. You understand that? God is sovereign, so he does what he wants to do. And we're going to have to see what he's done for us in his sovereign love and mercy for us by making us slaves to righteousness in order to answer this question as to why it is we're not going to keep on sinning. See, why we don't keep on sinning if left to our own freedom of choice, as will be illustrated in the next chapter particularly, but why we don't keep on sinning is not up to us. Why we don't keep on sinning really has very little to do with us, according to this passage. Why we don't sin is because God has made us a slave to righteousness. And that's the only reason we don't sin. Now, this is hard for us to swallow. Tighten up another notch on that seatbelt. Hang on with me, and let's go back through this same verse again. Verse 17, but God be thanked. Here, the focus of our attention needs to move away from us once again. He's been trying to do this 
throughout this entire chapter. He's been trying to peel our attention off of what we're going to do about our sin problem and put it on what God has been doing and is now doing about our sin problem. So here he's doing the same thing in verse 17. He's saying, but God be thanked. Our attention now goes to God and what he's doing. What are we thanking God about? That you were the servants of sin. You had no choice but to be dysfunctional. You had no choice but to be self-centered. You were born selfish, thinking only about yourself, and that's the way you live. Now, you toned it down a little bit with the help of your parents and other people around you, and later your peers and your teachers at school. You toned that self-centeredness down into what we might call a social acceptability of selfishness. You toned it down a little bit, but you were, by nature, self-centered because you were a slave to sin. But what are we thanking God about? We are thanking him because we have believed. We are thanking God and his grace because he chose us and caused us to believe in him. Now, this is a hard concept for us to come to grips with, but it's a very assuring concept if we can ever get the light bulb to click on. It's one that will radically change our lives. So I want to take plenty of time with this. We are thanking God because he found us. Several years ago, it's been a number of years ago now in, in Texas and I think all over the United States, there was a campaign in Christian circles and religious circles called the I Found It campaign. Some of you may remember that I Found It campaign in which people drove around in cars with a bumper sticker on it that says, I Found It. And what they meant to do, and they had good intentions, when they meant to just simply uh, encourage a little curiosity in the masses and say, what did you find? And then they would tell them about how they found Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And it, meant, it was meant to be an evangelistic kind of witnessing tool. However, what he's telling us here is not that we found anything, but rather the opposite. God found us. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, he didn't run immediately to God and say, God, I sinned, help me. No, he ran immediately away from God and hid behind God's bush, naked and ashamed. And it was God who came crying out to Adam, not because he was playing hide-and-seek, but because he was searching for Adam. He was reaching out to that sinful, dysfunctional person that Adam had become, that he might, by his grace, transform him into his own likeness. Now, this is what our author here is telling us when he says, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have literally been caused to obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You know, it's no accident. When I taught this uh, sort of thing in recovery programs, I'd frequently be speaking to men who were drug addicts and alcoholics, men who were dysfunctional from a number of different ways, and I would always ask them, do you think you're here by accident? And let me just apply the same concept here to you folks in the studio audience. Do you think you're here by accident? Or you who are at home watching this on the videotape, do you think you're watching this particular tape at this particular moment, right now, wherever you are, do you think that's just purely an accident? Do you think it's just random chance and just a coincidence that you happen to be watching this right now? It's not. God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but now... He has made you a slave to righteousness. It is he who is seeking you out by his grace, searching for you to restore you to health. You see, this is what keeps us from sinning. This is the very thing that we're thanking God for. Did you ever, let's put it in a little more practical terms here. I like to get real. And since we have gotten rid of all our facades and our masks and we're not like Moses, who covered up his face so nobody would see that he was real. We're going to get real here. I like to, I like to think about these things in, in real human terms. Did you ever think that God has to keep your heart beating and keep you breathing while you're sinning? Did that ever cross your mind? Did it ever cross your mind that God has to allow you to shake your fist in his face in rebellion? Did it ever cross your mind that the omnipotent, sovereign creator of the universe, the one who sustains every atom 
by the, his own power of his word, has to give you the human ability, the physical ability, to actually sin. He's the only one that holds you together. We learn this in Acts chapter 17, where Paul said in his sermon on, on Mars Hill, he said, in him, in God, we live and move and have our very being. Whether we understand it or not, God is the one that keeps us together and keeps us in one piece all of the time. So even when we're sinning, even when we're continuing in sin, we're not out from among God somewhere. Mentally, we're separated from him. Spiritually, we're separated. But he is sustaining our very life even when we're in rebellion against him. Now, while you were in that condition of being a slave to sin, God reached out by his grace, and through his love and his great mercy, he reached into your life with the word of the gospel and changed your thinking. It was his goodness that led to your repentance, and you changed your thinking you quit trying to be your own savior and you recognize that you needed a savior. God be thanked that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. And what happened to you at that moment? The old man that you were, that old sinful rebellious person you were was crucified with Christ. And a brand new person was raised up from the dead. And you are no longer a slave to sin but now you have become a slave to righteousness. Now I know that this has a tendency to do away with our freedom of choice. God has given us a freedom of choice, and I'll address that a little later. But for right now, I want you to put your freedom of choice, like your experience, I kind of want you to put it off aside right now and just listen to what the Word of God says is true about you. Get your freedom of choice out of the picture for a moment by focusing in on the sovereignty of God. By the way, the only reason we really like to hang on to our freedom of choice is because it makes us look good and makes us give us a sense of control and power and so on if we can think that we're in charge of our life in some way. And so I'm sorry if I offend your pride. I didn't mean to offend your pride. I mean to shatter your pride because your pride is killing you. So get your freedom of choice out of the way for a moment and think about what God is telling us right now. What is he saying? He is saying he has made you a slave to righteousness. You then are made free from sin and you became the servants or the slave of righteousness. So the answer to this question, shall we go on sinning? Is not no. If you keep on sinning, God's going to He's going to get you. He's going to squash you like a bug and fry you in hell. That's not the answer to this question. The answer to this question, shall we keep on sinning because we're not under law but under grace, is you can't keep on sinning because you are now a slave to righteousness. What's going to keep you from sinning is not your effort to keep yourself clean. It's going to be God's sovereign mercy in the new identity he's given you as a slave to righteousness. Now, he elaborates on this a little bit in the next verses, and I want us to, to see this. He says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. The reason he's saying that is to talk about what God has done for us in terms of slavery is really just a necessary kind of evil here because, you see, God, in making us slaves to righteousness, has not really made us a slave as much as he's set us free. The highest freedom we'll ever know in our life, the highest freedom we'll ever experience in our life is the freedom to, in the power of the Spirit, be Christ to other people. That's the highest freedom we can know. The freedom to think with the mind of Christ the freedom to follow the leadership of the Spirit of Christ in our life, the freedom to exercise our relationships in the power of Christ, that's the highest freedom we'll ever know. It's not really slavery. And so Paul says, I'm speaking after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. I have to talk in terms of slavery so we can deal with this self-control issue. I have to talk in terms, but really the highest form of freedom you'll ever know is to be a servant of righteousness. 
For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants of righteousness unto holiness. What he's saying here is, look, before you yielded your members, you gave your whole self to do whatever it's going to take to make you feel good with, without regard to God or anybody else. And just as you yielded yourself to do that, now yield yourself as servants to God to perform his calling in your life. Read on with me now to see a little further addition to this. In verse 20, he explains, For when you were servants of sin, when you were the slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. There was no righteousness in you when you were the servants of sin. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? You see, in our lives, and all of us have a bad track record, we all have to admit that, we like to remember the good things, but we can also be haunted by the bad things, can't we? All of us have that kind of bad track record, the things we just as soon forget, and they come back up here. What fruit had we in those things that we are now ashamed of? While we were the slaves to sin, there's nothing beneficial there. Oh, I know there's a temporary satisfaction that we get when we sin, isn't there? There's a temporary pleasure to sin. In fact, I frequently tell people, if you're sinning and not enjoying it, it's because you're doing the wrong sin. You've burned out on that sin. Because there is a temporary pleasure to sin for a season. But what he's talking about here is the true satisfaction that can't be taken away from you. And when we were sinning, we're not ashamed, we are ashamed of those things. We're not enjoying or deriving any satisfaction from it. And he says... When you were the servants of sin, you had no and you have only those things of which you are ashamed, for the end of those things is death. On top of that, being a slave to sin led you to dysfunctionality. It led you to death, either a personal death, as you become neurotic or psychotic, or a relational death, as you have a falling out with your family, with your friends, with the people you work with, and you can't get along with folks or a social death where you have to actually leave town and they want to get rid of you so bad, or it could even be a physical death in the sense of a psychosomatic disorder that develops because of the stress you're living under due to unbelief. All of this form of death comes about because we are slaves to sin. But look at the contrast here, verse 22. But now, but now, right now, being made free from sin. Let's remember again how we got made free from sin. Let's go back to our diagram. Remember, God created this brand new person we are, that we have here labeled the inward man. You can also call him the new creature. This brand new person is the new person you are that Ephesians 1 tells us is holy and without blame. You are free from sin because the old person you were that was sinful is crucified and buried with Christ. Now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying here is just simply this, that the reason you're not going to go on sinning is because God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, has made you to be a slave to righteousness now. The real person you are is a slave to righteousness. The real person you are wants to live like Christ. The real person you are is so inseparably joined to Christ, it's so in inseparably meshed with Christ, that the real person you are always thinks the thoughts of Christ with the mind of Christ. The real person you are wants to do what Christ would do in every situation. The real person you are is motivated with the same motives of grace that Christ was motivated with. Just as he believed in the Father and was motivated by faith, the real person you are has that same faith, the faith of Christ. Just as he had a joyful, confident expectation about his future, the real person you are 
has that same joy and hope. Just as he had an, an unbelievable love for the world of people around him, so you, in the real person God has made you to be, have a tremendous love for others. Now you say, I don't know that that's really true about me. I'm not sure I can really believe that about me. And what you're struggling to believe is the good news of what God has made you to be. What you're struggling to be, to believe, is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how do I know that that's true? Because the scriptures tell me that you're one with Christ. Frequently when I'm counseling with folks, doing personal counseling, they'll confess to me transgressions. You know, I, I don't hear confessions as a matter of course in, in my counseling, but frequently they'll have to tell somebody what they're struggling with, and so they'll just confess to me their transgressions. They'll, they'll confess to me, and I'm talking about Christian people now. I'm talking about people who have believed in Jesus Christ and so on. Some of them have been Christians, professing Christians, and church-going Christians for years. And they'll give me some unbelievable confessions. And one of the first things I had to learn about counseling was the first principle is never be shocked by what people tell you. Because you can imagine the horror that would be on their face if they told you something and you just fell off the chair with them. Okay? You could say, well, I shouldn't have told them that. Don't be shocked. And I have heard some unbelievable things that you wouldn't find terribly hard to believe about, quote, fine, upstanding, good Christians. Now, the news media knows about this, and so they're constantly looking, because it's such a shocking story when the pastor runs off with the secretary in the building fund to Mexico, right? Such a shocking story. That hits front page of the newspaper, doesn't it? And sometimes we get ourselves shocked by what Christians will do. But I, I'm getting digressing here a little bit, but I want you to understand that when I hear those things, it is my job at that moment to begin to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for that person who has just shared that with me because it's evident they're not believing it. In fact, they'll frequently say to me, I'm, I'm just absolutely no good. I am filthy. I'm unclean. I'm no good. And if I'm going to believe the gospel for them, I'm going to have to share with them the good news that God has made you holy and without blame before him in love. I'm going to have to share with them the good news that that old, filthy, no-good person you're thinking of yourself as was crucified with Christ and buried with him, and a brand-new person that is worthy, that is clean, that is righteous, has been raised up. That's who you really are. Now, some folks will say, well, that can't be who they really are. Look how they're acting. But you see, the gospel here doesn't concern your behavior directly. It concerns the good news of what God has made you personally to be. As you believe in what God says you are, as you believe what I've just rehearsed with you, that you have the mind of Christ, you have the calling of Christ, you have the spirit of Christ, you are one with Christ, what's true of Christ is true of you, as you believe that you are a slave to righteousness, a servant of righteousness rather than a slave to sin, a little thing happens to this new man that you are in Christ. It begins to grow. Now notice what's happening as this new man grows up in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's happening to this fleshly characteristic, this sin nature, it's being displaced from the inside out. You're changing. There's more of Christ's likeness being manifested in your life than before. There's less of the sinful flesh being manifested. This is how we are changed from glory to glory. As we look into the mirror to see who we are in Christ, as we see the truth of the Word of God unveiled before our very eyes, the Spirit enlightens our minds to the truth of who God has made us to be, we are changed. We began to grow up, and it displaces our flesh. But the fundamental thing we've got to believe in is that we are not our flesh anymore. That God has, by his grace, miraculously separated us, the new persons we are, from our flesh.
I love the story of Jesus with the, at, with the woman at the well to illustrate this concept. You see, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he went into the city. I just said woman at the well, but I meant Jesus with a woman taken in the very act of adultery, similar to the woman in the well. This woman was taken in the very act of adultery, the scribes and Pharisees, the legalists of her day said. Rabbi, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Did you ever think about how they had, what they had to do to catch her in the very act of adultery? They had to be pretty sly boogers there to catch her in the very act of adultery, didn't they? In fact, they probably had to transgress the law themselves to catch her in the very act of adultery, but they did, and they brought her into the temple, and they threw her down at Jesus' feet, and they said, the law demands that we stone this woman to death. What do you say, great teacher? Now, they didn't say that because they really wanted an answer. They said that to trap Jesus because they knew full well that the law of Moses demanded, like all of the other Ten Commandments, if you violated one of the commands, you deserve death. But they also knew full well that Roman law that they were currently living under prohibited putting anyone to death except by Roman authority. And so they were trying to snare Jesus. They were trying to ensnare him in a trap here. If he said stoner to death, he would be in violation of Roman law and they would immediately turn and report him to the elders and to the authorities. If he said let her go, he would be in violation of Mosaic law. Either way, they thought they had him. Oh, we've got him in a law squeeze now. We're going to get him. He can't get out. There's no way for him to escape now. So what did Jesus do? In John chapter 8, you read about this story. Jesus, first of all, was extremely gracious to these men who were learned religious men of the day. He was extremely gracious by just simply ignoring them. He ignored their silly question concerning the law. And he stooped down and he began to write in the ground. Now, I don't know what he wrote on the ground. Different people have speculated that perhaps he started writing out sins that he knew that these men had probably committed, catching this woman in the very act of adultery. Perhaps he wrote down other things. We don't know what he wrote. But after a while, they persisted in wanting an answer. So he stood up and he faced them and he said, you who are without sin, You who have no sin in your life, you who have no flesh to deal with, you cast the first stone. You throw that stone at her and go ahead and kill her. Then he stooped back down and began to write again. One by one, the scripture tells us, the men became convicted, beginning at the eldest, the one who had lived the longest, obviously sinned the most, beginning at the eldest and going to the least, they left one by one, convicted of their own sin. Then he asked the woman, he stood up again and he said, woman, where are your accusers? See, this is a marvelous thing, how Jesus deals with sin in our life. I love this story because the first thing he does is he deals with all the people that will accuse you of having sin and dysfunction in your life. He says, don't worry about them. I'll deal with them. This issue is between me and you. And he said, woman, where are are your, are your accusers? Does no man accuse you? And she replied to him, Lord, no man accuses me. Then he said to her these words, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What Jesus did at that very moment was to separate the woman's sin from the woman. He said, neither do I condemn you. You are under no condemnation. You're trusting in me. You believe in me. You are worthy. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. On the basis of not being condemned, the woman who had the power to overcome the sin. You see, this is how grace operates. It operates from the inside out. On the basis of us being set free from condemnation, we have the power in the spirit to deal with that flesh. What he's trying to get us to see here at the end of Romans chapter 6 is that we are not our flesh. We are no longer slaves to righteousness, or slaves to sin rather, but we are now servants 
of righteousness. We are no longer who we've always thought of ourselves as being. We are brand new creatures created in Christ Jesus. And as you and I focus our attention now on what God has done miraculously by his grace to make us servants of righteousness, to make us these brand new people, as you and I focus our attention on what he has done to set us free, then we get our mind off of what we have to do and we exercise faith. You see, the biggest thing that he's calling us to here is to believe what he's done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. One of the early church fathers said, the highest duty of man is to believe. The highest duty of man is to exercise faith. And as we wrap up this session, I want us to talk about what it means to keep on believing that we are slaves to righteousness. What it means to keep on believing that we are actually crucified with Christ, buried with him, and raised up as brand new creatures in Christ Jesus. This means that on a daily basis, you and I are going to have to choose to believe what he tells us back in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. He says that we are to count on the fact that we ourselves are dead indeed unto sin. What he's calling us to is through the eye of faith to see ourselves in a completely different light than we normally have. Most of us, all our life, in fact, all of us to some degree, all our life have seen ourselves as being guilty. We've seen ourselves as failures. We've seen ourselves as falling short of the glory of God. We've seen ourselves of not being worthy, being unworthy of love, and being unworthy of respect. And what he's calling on us to do now, by faith alone, and what he says he's done for us, is to count on the fact that we are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. As we exercise that faith, we enter into this grace wherein we stand. You see, when we talk about grace as a lifestyle, we're talking not only about the inward motives of faith, hope, and love. We're talking not only about the functional living like Christ, but we're talking about a realm in which we ourselves can enter into by faith. Back in chapter 5 of Romans, in the very first verses of that chapter, the very first two verses, he says, Therefore, having believed in Jesus, therefore we are justified by faith. And we have peace with God. You see, it is our faith in what God has done for us we couldn't do for ourselves that gives us justification, that gives us the fact that we are declared righteous by God, made slaves of righteousness. And it is that faith that brings peace between us and God. We are justified by faith. But then he goes on in verse 2 to tell us, also by that same faith, trusting in what God has done for us, we can't do for ourselves. We have access into this grace wherein we stand. This is a marvelous thing. How do we get into grace as a lifestyle? Simply by faith. That's all. It's not something you do to get into grace as a lifestyle, to live a lifestyle of grace like Jesus. It's something you believe. And what specifically are you to believe in? You're to believe in what God has been and is now doing for you that you couldn't do for yourself. You're to believe in the marvelous provisions that he has made that you should be called his children, that you should be adopted into his family, that you should be made holy and without blame before him. We're to believe that he has made us a brand new person, having put to death the old person we were and raised up a brand new person. Now, you're going to have trouble believing that. And in later sessions, we're going to talk about the trouble you're going to have believing that, the conflicts that we have within to believe that truth. But it remains that if we're going to walk and live in the grace of God, we're going to have to believe on a daily basis what God has done for us. You see, there are three things that are going to war against that faith that you're to exercise every day. The first thing is your own performance. 
when you, under the direction and influence of that flesh nature that still inhabits the same body, actually behave in the opposite direction from what God says we should, when you actually, in your flesh, violate the law of God, your performance is going to say to you that you're not okay any longer, that you are not worthy, that you are unworthy of love and are deserving of punishment. Your own performance, your own bad track record will frequently tell you the gospel's not true for you. The second thing, if it's not your own performance, it'll be somebody else around you. They also will tell you that you're not to believe the gospel. If you're not telling yourself that you're unworthy, somebody else in your environment will certainly do the job for you. They'll certainly criticize you about something and say, you can't possibly be worthy. And finally, the third thing that you'll have to deal with on a daily basis is your circumstances in life. When bad things happen to you, when suffering comes into your experience, you'll find yourself saying, I can't possibly be secure because I've got all these bad things happening around me. I can't possibly be worthy. I can't possibly be God's child because look at all this stuff happening around me. So your own performance, the opinion of others, and your circumstances will rise up on a daily basis to convince you that you are no longer a slave to righteousness, you are now a slave to sin, or that you are no longer worthy, that you are dead indeed to God and alive unto sin. So on a daily basis, we're going to have to exercise faith. Now this is nothing new in the scriptures. And I want you folks to understand this. This is nothing unusual in the scriptures, that we should have to exercise faith. That's why we're referred to very often as believers, because believers believe. They exercise faith every single day. Paul admonishes the Colossian believers, for instance. He says, as you therefore receive Christ Jesus your Lord, so walk ye in him. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. How are we to walk in him? How did we receive him? By grace, through faith, we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now, on a daily basis, by grace, through faith, and what he has been and continues to do for us, we're to walk in consistently trusting him. Paul quotes an Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk. And he says, the just, those who are justified, those who are slaves of righteousness, those who are born again, those who are brand new people, shall keep on living by faith. Also, the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you see, all the way through the scriptures in the New Testament, we are called to exercise faith. The biggest battle you and I will fight on a daily basis is whether or not we're going to trust what God says is true about us. Because you see, there are going to be relationships that will cause us to doubt that. There are going to be circumstances that will cause us to doubt that. And we're going to have to come back to fight the good fight of faith. So all the way through the New Testament, we're instructed to believe in what God says is true about us. All the way through the New Testament, we're instructed to walk by faith. Now, the really difficult part of this, if that's not hard enough, the worst part about this is what faith really is. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Follow me on this diagram now. When I look at you or you look at me, what we see is not our real person. What we see is a manifestation of not only our real inner man, but also the flesh. And sometimes in my life, what you'll see is more of the flesh than you will the real person I am. Like when I let you down. Or when I get emotionally upset. Or when I fail you in some way. You'll say, he's not a new person. He's a sinful person. Through the eye of faith, we're going to have to first see ourselves as a brand new person. 
But remember what faith is now. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the proof of those things that we can't see. There's no evidence that proves that we're a brand new person. Now, I know that we like to talk about bearing fruit as Christians, don't we? We like to, we like to say, well, I know they're a Christian because they're bearing fruit. Be careful of that. People take this out of context. They use Matthew chapter 7, and they, they say, well, we can know if they're a Christian or not by whether they bear fruit. Listen, God has not called you to be fruit inspectors. Okay, that's not your job. He has not called you to determine whether or not a person is Christ, a Christian by their behavior. That's not your job at all. And so we're not going to be looking at bearing fruit to determine whether or not we're a Christian. We are going to be looking through the eyes of faith at this new person. That means in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, I'm going to choose to believe there's a brand new person inside of you. In spite of all your track record, I'm going to choose to believe according to the word of God that he has made you holy and without blame before him in love. That's how I believe the gospel for you. That's how I walk by faith. In order to do that, obviously, I'm going to need to believe the gospel about me, that I am truly worthy as well because of what the word of God tells me. I am a slave to righteousness. May God grant us the grace to exercise that faith, not only concerning ourselves, but also concerning one another. Thank you, and the Lord bless you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 